It's not an absolute concept that has no limitations upon it um, because God has also established authority. He's established realms of government and jurisdictions of authority in the home, in the church, and in society at large. We see this in God's Word, and we know, as we've seen this paragraph uh, directing us to these Scripture references, that it's not God's intent that His kingdom be divided and at war uh, within itself, and He has established these powers or authorities. He's also given us the liberty that we have in Christ, and so clearly it's His intention, as the Confession says, that these should, um, rather than destroy one another, they're to mutually uphold and preserve one another. That those who are exercising and, and rejoicing in their liberty in Christ are the best citizens, uh, the best um, uh, of those under authority in these various realms. That to the full extent of all that Christ has told us and the boundaries of what He has said, we, we are those with the most willing spirit to yield in submission to those that God has put over us. And by the same token, these authorities are to view their role as the servant of Christ, not some rogue authority exercising their own will, but they are the minister of Christ. That's what we read in Romans 13. And so what does that mean? Well, the very Lord, that's the Lord over all our conscience, has, has given these as His servants to encourage, to protect, to... Uh, to provide order, uh, but certainly not to exceed or counter or, or flee from or outlaw or deny the will of their master, Jesus Christ. And so where those are both recognized and pursued as God has ordained, uh, then that is what happens. These mutually uphold and preserve one another. And so based on that premise then, if we keep reading uh, let's just read this fourth paragraph, and then we're coming to the end this week where we're looking at these scripture references of, so what has God provided to restrain the abuse of Christian liberty? If someone in the name of Christian liberty is actually throwing off the right authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the one who's given us the standard He's the one whose will must be obeyed. And so if someone says, well, I'm free in Christ, and then what? Throws off that authority, the very authority of the Lordship of Christ. What, what are our fellow citizens in the kingdom supposed to do? How should we view that? Is, that? is that a legitimate exercise of Christian liberty? No, it's not. And so this is where the exercise of the authority that Christ has given His servants, His ministers is supposed to be wielded in the, in the right manner and within the jurisdiction that Christ has given them. And so we've been looking at that last week, and that's where we'll continue and hopefully finish this morning. And so let's read this fourth paragraph together. Because And because the powers which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ hath purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. And for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature, 
or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversation, or to the power of godliness, or such erroneous opinions or practices as, either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them, are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ hath established in the church, they may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church and by the power of the civil magistrate. Now, again, we note that that last phrase, and by the power of the civil magistrate, was removed in 1789 by the American Presbyterian Church as they adopted this confession as the confession of the church. We've talked about that, why that was the case. We spent some time last week looking at that. And there is an entire chapter devoted to the civil magistrate. So they're going to speak to what is the appropriate role of the civil magistrate with respect to a rebellion against the lawful authority of Jesus Christ and his ministers. But they confine this chapter to the authority of the church with respect to these who are seeking to undermine or reject or resist the ordinance of God. And that's where we are looking this morning in these scripture references. So if you'll look at Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, and we have several verses here. And again, what is the point that they're seeking to make? Well, that in the New Testament particularly, we have the instruction of God's word that those that would just rebellious, throw off authority, go their own way, reject the authority of God's word, reject the right teaching of his word, uh, they, they weren't just to be allowed to proceed unhindered, but that within the church, Christ's ministers within the church were to uh, call them to account were to rebuke them, were to admonish them. And if they would persist to a point, would even, as this confession says, the censures of the church, that might be anything from admonishment, all the way to the final step of church discipline. We saw that last week in terms of that passage in 1 Corinthians 5, where someone living in open sexual immorality Paul said, this, this is so heinous, this is such rebellion, you all need to repent of countenancing and tolerating this. You need to be humbled that you would not stand with Christ and, and rather just thought you had your own standard you could live by. And he called upon the elders of that church to, to recognize and excommunicate that individual. Now, we reference that this, this individual did repent, and in 2 Corinthians, the second letter Paul writes, he admonishes the church then to accept and restore such a one in love because they have expressed their repentance. And so it's not, it's not to be done in a spirit of malignancy or hatred, but in love and with a desire to please Jesus and see that one come back to submission to the Lordship of Christ. Both of those uh, goals in view. Here we have then in Titus chapter 1, verse 10, what does Paul say? For there are many who are insubordinate. What, what does that word mean? Well, they are rejecting all authority. Well, I don't have to listen to you. I can stand up and say whatever I want to whenever I want to. 
Uh, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And so here we see this where the limit of what we might think of as your freedom of speech. Well, where's the limit of that? Well, Jesus says if you're using your freedom of speech to clearly reject the truth of his word, then not, not with force. It doesn't say, you know, get the deacons to get a rope and tie them up and throw them out the door. But he says to rebuke him, to answer that error with the truth of God's word, and to silence him, that is to say, you're not free to come in our, our gathering here as God's children and speak against what Jesus has said in his word. You're not free to do that. You, you must be silent. Um, warning those who are otherwise listening, and as we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, even excommunicating if they refuse to be teachable. Let's also look at Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Here we have a reference to this excommunication, which this communion we have, this fellowship we have, where we're all members of a family in the family of God, and we're members of a church congregation together. As for a person, in verse 10, who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And so here again, it's not to be done callously or heartlessly, but with a, a, an ultimate love for Jesus Christ and with a love for that person. Uh, they must be warned. They have to be stopped in their course of rebellion. Uh, they can't go on thinking they can do what displeases Jesus and, and no consequences will, will come to them. And so here, this person who had been stirring up division, who had rejected all correction from the Word of God after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's the practical effect of excommunication. Before, you recognize, these are my people. These are my family. Um, we love each other. We're sharing our lives together, our meals together, our friendships are with one another. Um, if, if it gets to this point, one of us is throwing off the authority of Jesus Christ. I just want to, to believe this, or I just want to teach this. I want us all to do this. Well, that's not what Jesus allows us to do. Jesus doesn't allow us to teach that. Well, I don't care. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to keep teaching it. If it gets to this, then we have to say, well, well we have to show you that, that our fellowship as a family, it's all in Jesus. He's the reason any of us are here. We can't reject him and his authority and retain that close fellowship and relationship together, and so that's what excommunication is all about. It's, it's publicly, formally telling the whole people of God there and that individual 
You may not consider yourself a member of this family. You are, you're put out until you repent. We're praying for that. But you can't continue. You can't, don't fool yourself. Don't think that all is well and you're part of the family of God if you are at the same time rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ. His word is our law. He is the head and the king of the church. And so you can't be a part of his kingdom. You can't think of yourself as a part of his kingdom if you won't recognize the king over the kingdom. And so that's, that's the, the impact of that. Now, again, uh, if that individual just leaves and, and goes on, they, they have the, the freedom to say certain things that are wrong, don't they? They have the ability to, to have these opinions, to share these opinions even. Um, but we are to speak God's, God's word. Even, even past that point, we're, we're hopefully having a testimony to the truth such that whatever is being said in the world that certainly is little of the truth in it, hopefully our testimony to the truth of God's word would be used by the Holy Spirit uh, to open the eyes of those who are otherwise in, in the bonds of, of deceit. All right, let's look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And so this doesn't just apply to the case we just saw, which was someone who's just publicly, openly insubordinate, but literally disrupting the worship service, maybe heckling, the, heckling through the sermon. I don't believe that. I don't have to listen to that. Um, y'all need to, we just all leave. Everybody who's tired of this preacher, stand up. Let's leave. I mean, imagine how long that lasts. Um, so not only a case of just open, public, false teaching and dis- disruption, that's what Titus was dealing with, um, but here in Matthew 18, even in the matter of a more personal and private offense, this, this can lead to a point where the church becomes involved. And so let's read in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, right there is the scenario. This is what's laid out. One of us has sinned against another, okay? We weren't standing up in church and heckling the, the preacher, but we, we just in a much more private way were, we gave offense, we sinned. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That there's an effort first to reconcile to, to show, to acknowledge, who is this? This is my brother, right? I'm going to go to my brother in love. I'm going to point out to him how many times have we sinned just in blindness or how many times have we sinned in a moment of weakness. And, and all it would take is that person coming to us gently in the spirit of Matthew 7, humbly, you know, brother, I love you and I've fallen into sin, uh, I'm sure many times more than you have. But here is what I, I have to tell you. When we were together the other day or earlier today, here's, here's what you said. Here's what you did. And that, um, I've prayed about it. I, that's just a sin. shouldn't have done that. Now, if you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Oh, that's a sweet thing when we can confront one another in that spirit of humility. And, and you're right. I did say that. You're right. That was wrong. Would you please forgive me? I want to 
stop right here and ask God to forgive me as well. And then you're reconciled. That's where the, the power of the blood of Jesus has, has covered that sin. And it doesn't lead to uh, growing division or frustration. There's reconciliation. Well, what about if he does not listen? Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So maybe he's denying that he did it. Or maybe he is just simply denying that it's wrong. Whatever the case may be, he's not, he's not accepting your rebuke in the spirit you gave it. He's saying, uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to listen to your rebuke. I'm not going to repent. I, I don't think I was wrong to do that. Or maybe he's saying, I, I just didn't do what you're saying I did. Well, if it's a case where others witnessed what he has done, and that's what's disputed, then that's the function of these two or three witnesses. But if it's also just a case of him saying, um, well, you know, I did that, but that's just simply not wrong. Well, having one or two others who are going with you to say, well, look, they're here to help look at God's Word with us, and, and let's just look at it together now. Now, out of the four of us in this group, three of us are saying it is wrong for you to, you know, hit me on the head with a shovel in the field. And so, now, what do you think? Nope, that's not wrong. So, hopefully, they would put, well, you know, if it's not just you and me, maybe, maybe I can be persuaded. Um, here's where these two or three witnesses are helping to establish the truth of the matter, either, either the truth of what happened or possibly the truth of what God says about what is admitted to have happened. Hopefully that resolves it. Hopefully they're willing to listen. But look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And, and this isn't in the sense of, you know, call the secretary and get it put in the announcement section in the bulletin. That's not what's in view here. Um, if you look at Matthew 16, which we won't take the time to do, um, and also look at who he is speaking to as Jesus is teaching, um, there's, there's this element of authority in the church in view. Look at verse 18. Uh, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, that's, that's true in a more general sense, that God is with his people. He has a special regard for us as we, even in small groups, gather and pray. But the specific context of this is more in the, in the scenario of 1 Corinthians 6, which is where Paul admonished the Corinthians you shouldn't be going to these pagan courts to settle your differences. Are there no wise elders among you to hear these? I mean, don't you have elders in your church? It's the rhetorical question, and that's, that's what's in view here. Look at verse 17 again. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, He's involving and speaking to, being brought to those with authority in the church, those who've been charged as the servants of Christ to identify and exercise church discipline 
uh, where necessary. That's what's in view here. If he refuses to listen, so here he's 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 had three or four witnesses, um, two or three with the with the original um, person who was offended. Uh, they've they've come now to the to the court of the church to the elders of the church. Uh, they're they're making their case. Here's what this brother did. It, we believe it was sinful. Uh, he he refuses to repent. He refuses to acknowledge that this was wrong. Or or perhaps he says, you know, well, okay, it was wrong, but I don't care. I'm not sorry. You know, whatever that case might be. There they are, and the elders are hearing this, and they, they are to judge by the Word of God with faithfulness. Um, it might be that this one individual uh, was right, and two or three people could have misunderstood God's Word. The elders are there to, to say, well, now, here is what we see in Scripture, and they're supposed to bring God's Word forth and open it up and, and show everyone. Here's what Jesus does say. It's supposed to bring peace to the church and reconciliation. But in the case that's assumed here, this brother had sinned. He's wrong. And these witnesses have come and they've, they've given their testimony. Here's what we, we've seen and heard. Here's what he is saying. And, and he's there. He's there to speak for himself. He's there to, to answer for what he has done. And if he refuses to listen, as the elders are, are again, they're the ministers of God in the sense that they're his servants. Their only authority is to take God's word and to show this individual. Now, here's what you have said you've done. Here's what's been confirmed by these witnesses. Here's what God says about that. That's, that's their role. It's not to just close their Bible and say, well, let me tell you what I think. That's not the role of the elder, but rather to listen and look to Jesus, the head of the church. They're his ministers, his servants, and they're to take God's word and open it and apply it to this case. And so this, this scenario continues to play out. If he refuses to listen even to them, what are they supposed to do? If someone just becomes stubborn in their sin, it could have started as just a very small thing between two people. But if sin is, if repentance is refused, I just will not acknowledge that I have to do what Jesus is saying in his word. I don't have to repent. I don't have to confess this is sin. I'm not going to listen to you. If that's persisted in, it might have been just the smallest thing to begin with. But if it's persisted in all the way through this process, you can find a situation where the elders of the church have become involved. They are, they're hearing. And again, notice who are the individuals involved. This is a brother. These are two brothers. What does that mean? These are members of that congregation is, is what's assumed here in this situation. These, these, uh, the, the church in view if he refuses to listen even to the church, he's supposed to be put out of the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then Jesus adds those solemn words that that's not just an empty symbol. But if, if the situation is such that a person is refusing the authority of Jesus Christ over their life, they're refusing to confess and repent of a sin, however small that's being brought to them, 
and they are they are being forced to, to reckon with it. If, if they persist through all of these steps, and it's not the first time you sit down with a person, as you can see, um, what does that mean? Well, that earthly excommunication of recognizing you can't view yourself as a child of God if you won't listen to His Word, if you won't be willing to repent of your sin when you're confronted. Uh, Jesus says that has a heavenly correspondent. Whatever you bind on earth, it's actually a complicated tense in the Greek, shall have been bound in heaven is, is the effect of it. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That this, when faithfully done, is just simply a reflection of the, the heavenly reality of something that Christ himself has done. And so it's a very serious a very serious matter. But again, to the point of to the point of the confession, if someone in the name of Christian liberty is actually committing sin, even in a case of a private sin, of, of a personal sin, not, not this public sin that we have seen in Titus, but even in the case of a private sin, it can lead to the court of the church of Jesus Christ having to call that person to repent, and if they refuse, exercise the discipline of the Lord Jesus, uh, the censures of the church that are referenced here in our confession. Okay, let's look at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And so here we have now another example of this very thing having happened in in. 1 Timothy 1, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What is that a reference to? This very matter of excommunication. We're being told, listen, we, we live in the house of God. We're his children. He protects us. This is his house. But if you reject him as your Lord and you have to be put outside the house, well, who are you being given over to? Whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so again, it done biblically, faithfully done, lovingly done. Uh, this isn't just an empty symbol, but it represents uh, the reality uh, that you now are more exposed. You have run away from Jesus, and now here's the wolf coming for you. And with the prayer that they would recognize the peril of their state, you know, I, that's not what I want. I do want to repent. I do want to recognize Jesus as my Lord because I, I need his protection. I need his salvation. I, I, I repent. I confess. That's what Paul says. And, and even here, he, he anticipates in hope that result, doesn't he? As you look at verse 20 among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He's hopeful that this is going to have the effect of restoring them 
that they would learn just as a child. There are consequences. You cannot, you cannot reject the authority of Jesus Christ and, and please heed those consequences while there's time for repentance. Come back and express your repentance and be restored. That's the Im- implied message of this discipline. Okay, let's look at Revelation. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2. And so here we have several examples of either a church being commended for holding this line of faithfulness to Jesus, of, of, of saying, now we're, we're serious about this. You can't just live in open sin. You can't live like the world and, you know, wrench your pew here in the church and everyone is going to be fine with that. We're serious about it. So there are cases in the verses we're about to read where there's a church commended for being bold, being loving, uh, being faithful in this matter of church discipline. There are other cases where there are some pretty stern warnings that Jesus gives to churches. Again, on this very issue, you aren't doing this. You're not being willing to apply and, and hold this, this family of believers uh, to the authority of Scripture. You're just saying, just like the Corinthians said, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. I mean, we say Jesus is Lord, but that's kind of just an empty honorary title. In practice, come on in. You can do anything you want to. Well, Jesus wasn't pleased with this. So let's read these references in the letters to the seven churches. And so the first is in chapter 2, verse 2. This is to the, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Let's just begin there in verse 1. Write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So this is, he's commending them. You, you, you were diligent. You, you didn't just let people come in and claim whatever they wanted, but you took out your Bibles. You said, you claim to be an apostle of Jesus. Let's see what you're teaching. Let's see what you're saying. Let's see how you're living. They had tested those and found them to be false. Nope. Here's what Jesus says. You're not his apostle. He didn't send you here with a message. Uh, Here's what God says in his word. And so Jesus commends the church of Ephesus. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. And then he goes on in what he calls them uh, to repent of. Um, look in verse 6. This isn't in your references, but notice again at the end, he encourages them. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So again, these who are living just an open, wicked, licentious lifestyle, they're teaching this. Uh, This church hated that. And Jesus said, well, I commend you for that. I hate it too. And so there is this encouragement given that they, they did. Now, again, it has to be done in the name of Jesus, in the way Jesus would, with gentleness and patience. 
but uh, there must be a faithfulness to his word or we're, or we're no church of Christ. Now let's look at down to the letter to Pergamum in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I mean, what a place. Uh, such a, a stronghold of darkness. But here Jesus is building uh, his church in that very place. But look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, here we have the case where they were not being faithful to Christ. They weren't calling these living in open sin to repentance. They weren't holding the line. And what does Jesus say? Well, if you're not willing as my ministers, as my servants, to do what I've called you to do, um, I'll, I'll come do it myself. If you're not willing to call these people to repent, to show them that I am serious about being obeyed and my word being honored, if you're not willing to keep the gate, then I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, that is, that is not what you want. That's not what these people should want. And so, again, is it, is it a loving thing to practice church discipline? Well, of course, I mean, we could, we could say, well, it could be done wrongly. Well, that's true. Let's talk about done rightly. Is it a loving thing to practice church discipline? Well, what does Jesus say here? If you're not willing to do it, I'm going to come and deal with these people myself. And so what, what is our heart's desire if we're confronted with this situation? We want to be faithful to Jesus. We want him to be pleased with us. And we want to show mercy to these people and say, listen to us, please. This is urgent. You must repent so that you can, you can be right with God and be at peace with him. If you won't repent, then you're not going to be dealing with us. You're going to be answering to Jesus. And we beg you not to persist in this sin. We beg you not to press on ahead. You see, if, if, if loving church discipline isn't done, that, that voice of warning just drops out of the picture. In fact, as we saw at the end of Romans 1, what are you, you're basically encouraging this. Hey, you're fine. There's no problem. If you feel a little guilty about it, don't worry, that'll go away. Don't worry about this. Everybody's welcome, no matter what you're doing. Well, is that, is that what Jesus says? Because, again, if you won't be his voice and call them to repent, he will come and deal with them. And so that's scary, scary business. All right, let's look then at verse 20. Here we are, the, the church in Thyatira. 
in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to to your works. So again, not only was Jesus displeased by this woman, she called herself a prophetess, but uh, he, he's named her according to her character. That woman Jezebel, I don't think she called herself Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess. She says, oh, I'm, I'm the voice of God in this church, and you can listen to me and know what God says. And and what is she saying in the name of God? She's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. You see what? She's come and she has completely shaken her fist in the face of Jesus. You're not the king and head of this church. I am now. And my, my word is what we're going to go by. Uh, Jesus obviously is coming and he is not going to sit idle for long. He gave her time to repent, but she refuses. He's coming in that same way that we just saw warning about in the church of Pergamum. He's coming to, to bring judgment. Uh, Jesus always will deal with sin. The question is, will his church be faithful and lovingly warn those who are heading into such a situation? And that was where the very beginning of verse 20 this church itself had been unfaithful. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Uh, they're just sitting back. Apparently these elders in particular, just sitting back. Well, this is just the church we have now. Well, Jesus said, I'm holding this against you. You have not spoken up. You haven't put a stop to this. You haven't spoken up and said, now wait a minute. Look at what you're teaching. Look at what our Lord says. He says this sexual immorality is wicked in his sight. We can't teach this in this church. We, we belong to him. We're his people. They were just sitting back. No one had the boldness and the courage to stand up. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that was, in, in, a, in a carnal context, uh, an appealing popular teaching. You know, let's put it to a vote. Who thinks we can do whatever we want to? Raise your hand. I mean, you can see how that would be difficult, especially once it's taken hold. But nonetheless, Jesus said, you know, you're going to call yourself my servant and just sit there? You're not going to say anything? Jesus said, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Well, he has some encouragement on down to the lower part of that letter, but we were focused on, on these references to church discipline. So let's go on to the last one in Revelation chapter 3. 
And this is to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, this messenger or angel, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you've kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is, this is a little bit of a different situation. Uh, here we see a case where a people, a group of people, who had for a long time, long years, professed to be the people of God. We're the people of God. I mean, you could pick them out at the mall. Well, they're the people of God. Those people, as a group, en masse, have set themselves against the Lord Jesus. And, of course, we're speaking about uh, the, the Old Testament, Old Covenant people of God, those Jews that rejected the Lord Jesus when He came to be their Messiah. And here they had a whole nation of people. Praise God, many of them did repent. I mean, Jesus was born of the Jewish people. His disciples were all Jews initially. And then he, he opened the gates of his kingdom to all the peoples of the world. And so it's not, it's not an ethnic uh, evaluation here. But in terms of the religious Jews, those who had hold, held on to uh, the misinterpretations of the Old Testament under the leadership of the Pharisees particularly, uh, who had rejected Jesus. No, we don't need this man to come and, and claim to be the Son of God that has come to save us. We reject Him. Um, we call for His crucifixion. Uh, we, we reject Him entirely. What does this verse tell us? Behold, in verse 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. This, a whole church in this case, a whole synagogue, that at one point was a house of worship where you, you can read in the life of Jesus. He and his disciples, they would worship in the synagogues. They would read the scriptures. He would have opportunities to preach in the synagogues. But after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus has formed his, his church. And what, what does that mean to all of these synagogues? Those who say they are Jews but are not, what does that mean? Well, they're, they're physically Jews, they're ethnically Jews, but in terms of the significance of that claim, that we are the people of God, they're claiming that, but it's simply not true. It's not true. Why? Because they have cut themselves off from the root and life of the church, the king and head, Jesus Christ. Uh, God says this, this can't, may not even happen just to an individual. This can happen to a whole church. A whole congregation uh, may be broken off, as it were, and lose their character as a part of the family of God. And so, again, that's, that's the warning 
to us, both as individuals and members of this body, that we must be faithful to Jesus, and we must welcome the help and the correction when it comes, when it's our turn to be admonished. May we have humility and receive that, that we might be close to our Lord and Savior. Let's pray in His name. Our Father, we give thanks to You for Your Word, which is truth and life, which sets us free. We thank You that under the Lordship of Christ, we are free from the domination and tyranny of men. We thank You for the grace that You have given us in Christ. And we thank You for preserving the order of society by appointing the authorities and the jurisdictions that You have given to each and the limits that You have placed upon each. Lord, we give thanks to You for Your wisdom and Your design for society to function in this balanced um, way where the authorities that You have appointed and the the freedom that You have given all, all of us Uh, are designed to mutually uphold and support one another and not to mutually destroy one another. And so we pray that we would be better students of your word and that we would be um, faithful custodians of the liberty that you have given us in Christ and that we would be willing, Lord, in, in whatever relation we stand to this authority in cases where we are in a position of authority or under it as may be. We pray that in all cases we would all view ourselves as the servants of Christ and be willing uh, to rule and act and live by the authority of his word and not the word of man. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.